President Biden is in Finland to welcome the country into NATO and attend a summit of Nordic leaders. It's Thursday, July 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, FBI Director Christopher Wray defends his agency against accusations from some Republicans that the Bureau is targeting conservatives. The men and women of the FBI work tirelessly every day to protect the American people from what is really a staggering array of threats. Also this hour, proposals to criminally charge patients who get abortions, and President Biden shifts his campaign message away from climate change and toward the economy. Some younger voters are concerned. He does, you know, things like allowing drilling in the Arctic again. Um, so it kind of like undermines my faith a little bit. Forecast says clouds, showers, highs in the 80s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. California is facing a dangerous heat wave. Temperatures in some parts of the state could soon top 120 degrees. From member station KVPR, Joshua Yeager reports that would bust century-old records. Forecasters say a heat dome is behind the sweltering weather set to bake much of the southwest. That's air heated over the Pacific Ocean and trapped under high atmospheric pressure. The high pressure kind of acts like a blanket. Carlos Molina is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says this blanket is going to cover much of inland California for days. Several cities here are expected to break daily heat records above 110 degrees. Nearly all of the state will be under an excessive heat warning by Friday. That means stay indoors if you can. For NPR News, I'm Joshua Yeager in Bakersfield. The National Weather Service says several tornadoes hit Illinois yesterday, most of them in the Chicago area. One of the tornadoes touched down near O'Hare Airport, grounding flights. Greg Timpey lives in a Chicago suburb where a tornado tore down a 100-year-old tree on his property. It really left as quick as it came. It was maybe 10, 20 seconds and it was out of here and all this. There are no reports of injuries. The Georgia State Election Board is suing the organization True the Vote. Officials allege the group promotes election conspiracy theories and has refused to provide evidence for its claims. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass has more. In a movie titled 2000 Mules, True the Vote argued without evidence that unspecified liberal groups conspired to stuff drop boxes in swing states with fraudulent ballots to steal the 2020 election from Donald Trump. Law enforcement has debunked those claims, but True the Vote filed a complaint with the election board, accusing groups of paying $10 per absentee ballot submitted by Dropbox. The board, which is dominated by Republican appointees, has issued subpoenas for documents or sources to prove the claims, but True the Vote has not produced any. The election board has already dismissed other cases highlighted by 2,000 mules. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. President Biden is in Helsinki today meeting with the president of Finland. They'll also attend a key meeting with other leaders from Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland. Biden has just come from the NATO summit in Lithuania. The allies discussed beefing up their cooperation with Ukraine as it resists Russia's invasion. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials say they have again shot down about 20 Russian drones aimed at their capital, Kyiv, overnight. Falling debris wounded at least two people and destroyed some homes. Ukrainian officials also said they intercepted two Russian cruise missiles in other parts of the country. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Buses are replacing trains on the red line right now between Broadway and Harvard. The MBTA says that's because of a disabled train. The mechanical problem caused smoke at the Charles MGH station this morning. The T is telling riders to use buses or the commuter rail to get downtown. There's no word on how long the service will be suspended. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell says her office is prepared to help communities dealing with gun violence. Adam Frenier reports that Campbell made those comments during a visit to Springfield yesterday. Springfield has been dealing with a recent uptick in gun violence. During an event in the city, Campbell said the fact young people are dying as a result is unacceptable. She had a specific focus on what to do to curb the incidents. There's a lot that we can do from our office space, which we're doing to take guns off the street, including ghost guns, legislative solutions to help with ghost guns, and establishing a gun violence prevention unit. Some city officials and community leaders in Springfield have said judges are too lenient with repeat violent offenders, releasing them while they await trial, only to see some of them again involved in violence. Campbell said she believes people need to be held accountable, but dealing with mental health and substance abuse issues should not be, quote, criminalized. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Democrats on Beacon Hill are rolling out a new, almost $700 million supplemental budget plan. It includes funding for hospitals, state union agreements, and special education. The House is expected to pass the measure today, and that's despite lawmakers not having approved an annual budget for this fiscal year that began two weeks ago. Talks on that began back in April. A $5 billion development project in Dorchester is a step closer to becoming a reality. The Boston Globe report that the city's Architectural Review Board has approved the so-called Dorchester Bay City project this week. The massive development is planned at the former site of the Bayside Expo Center next to the UMass Boston campus. It includes almost 2,000 housing units and 15 acres of open space. More than a third of New England families with children under the age of five use more than one form of child care. That's the finding of new research from the University of New Hampshire Jess Carson authored the report, and she says dealing with different forms of child care means a lot of day-to-day changes. So it may mean having to, to pick and choose and juggle between different arrangements. I think what it looks like on the ground really depends on the family, but that, that recognition that there is such a mixture of what families need from their child care arrangement is the piece that's most important. Overall, her research found that 70 percent of New England households with young children used at least some child care, including child care centers, babysitters, and family members. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. In sports, the New England Revolution beat Atlanta United FC 2-1 to in Foxborough last night. The Revs' next game is Saturday at home against D.C. United. Stanley Cup will be in Milton today with former Bruins head coach Bruce Cassidy. Cassidy led his new team, the Vegas Golden Knights, to the NHL title last month. He will use the visit with the Stanley Cup today to raise money for a local nonprofit. 
Our weather forecast is calling for clouds today. Showers likely this afternoon. Highs will be in the upper 80s. Rain tonight with lows around 70 degrees. Thunderstorms likely tomorrow. Temperatures in the 80s and looks like the threat of rain will stay with us into early next week. It is 73 degrees in Boston. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in and, Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. In a moment, Fox News faces a lawsuit for defamation. A previous defamation suit cost the company $787 million. First, we follow up on a NATO summit. President Biden met other leaders of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Since the 1940s, it's been the most vital U.S.-led alliance. It once protected Western Europe from the Soviet Union, and today it protects even more of Europe from Russia, which President Biden said is vital. The idea that the United States could prosper without a secure Europe is not reasonable. A big question at this summit is who's in the alliance and who's not. Sweden got in. Ukraine, of course, did not, at least not yet. And leaders at that summit included NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who's back on the program. Welcome, sir. Thanks so much for having me. We'll just note that the NATO ally Turkey dropped its objection to letting Sweden join the alliance. How was that resolved? I had a meeting with President Erdogan and uh, the Swedish uh, Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson and there uh, we reached an agreement uh, on uh, how to ensure that uh, now Sweden will become a full member of the alliance. Uh, and of course uh, also the support from the United States and President Biden has been extremely important in uh, making this uh, solution possible. So this is a good day for Sweden and a good day for the whole of NATO. Turkey, of course, had these uh, seemingly unrelated demands having to do with people they regard as terrorists who were on Swedish soil. Was it appropriate for President Erdogan to bring up those matters? And do you still regard Turkey as an ally in good standing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Turkey is a very important uh, ally. Uh, they are uh, extremely important in our fight against ISIS, Daesh in Iraq and Syria, the only NATO ally bordering Iraq and, uh, and, uh, and Syria. And PKK uh, is a terrorist organization in uh, Turkey. Uh, but uh, they are also responsible for organized crime in Sweden and in other countries in Europe. So the fact that we now are stepping up our cooperation on fighting terrorist organizations like PKK uh, is important both for Turkey but also for the rest of Europe. How much does it matter now that all of Scandinavia, including Finland, which borders Russia, all of Scandinavia is now in the alliance or on its way in? It will strengthen uh, NATO, but it's, of course, also extremely important for the Nordic region, where all uh, countries are now part of uh, the same uh, security arrangements, uh, are uh, members of NATO, and Sweden soon will be a full uh, member. And by having Finland in, uh, NATO's border with Russia is more than doubling. Uh, and the reality is that Putin now is getting the exact opposite of what he uh, wanted when he went to war against Ukraine. He's getting more NATO and more uh, uh, members uh, in NATO. So 
it demonstrated that it was a big strategic failure of uh, Putin to invade Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine cannot or is not being allowed to join at this time, much as it would like to, and even though it's being supported by the NATO alliance. And on one level, this seems self-evident. NATO uh, uh, regards an attack on one member as an attack on them all. Ukraine is being attacked at the moment, so joining NATO would seem to bring all of NATO directly at war with Russia, which you don't want. Uh, does that mean the war would have to end, decisively end, in order for Ukraine to become part of NATO? It means that at least uh, as uh, the situation is uh, in Ukraine now, with a full-fledged war going on, uh, of course that makes it impossible to have uh, Ukraine as uh, as a member because uh, uh, NATO supports Ukraine. We help them to uphold the right for self-defense, but NATO uh, uh, is not directly involved in the conflict. and uh, and. Uh, and uh, uh, since NATO is based on the idea of one for all, all for one, an attack on one ally will trigger a responsible whole alliance, then we need to find a, a way to, uh, to, uh, to, to make uh, Ukraine a member, which doesn't then trigger a full-scale conflict between Russia and NATO. So you would need to find some formula, and would that have to involve some kind of peace settlement first with Russia before you could do that? I'm a bit careful speculating exactly on how we uh, will overcome that uh, uh, challenge. Uh, the most uh, uh, imminent task now is to ensure that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation, because unless Ukraine prevails as a democratic nation in Europe, there is no membership issue to be discussed at all. And the important thing we did at the NATO summit uh, in Vilnius this week was to move Ukraine closer to NATO membership, a multi-year program ensuring their forces are fully interoperable with NATO and also strengthening political ties with Ukraine and then declaring that Ukraine will become a member of the alliance. In a few seconds, is the NATO alliance, are the member countries able to supply Ukraine with everything it needs for its ongoing offensive against Russia? Yes, uh, and again, the U.S. has demonstrated the leadership, uh, providing unprecedented level of support with ammunition, with uh, advanced weapon systems, and uh, European allies have also stepped up and uh, increased uh, defense spending, uh, record uh, high numbers this year, and also more support uh, for Ukraine. So all NATO allies support Ukraine. Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. When President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law last year, he celebrated it as a massive cash investment aimed at tackling the climate crisis. The package is projected to cut 40 percent of greenhouse gas pollution by 2030. But now in his reelection campaign, the president is talking about it mostly as a big economic win. When I think of climate, I think of jobs. When I think of climate, I think of innovation. When I think of jobs, uh, climate, I think of turning peril into progress. But there are risks for Biden in making this more about the economy than the planet. Here's NPR's Eric McDaniel. Across the street from Carver Vocational Technical High School in Baltimore, students are remodeling a row house, part of a program that teaches sustainable building techniques. Would anyone like to take a roll? I'm always down. Democratic Governor Wes Moore takes over from one of the students rolling primer onto the house's brick interior. This visit is part of a full court press by allies of the White House to bring attention to President Biden's economic achievements. And his top climate aide, Ali Zaidi, was there watching the action. Folks are getting enlisted to help retrofit our buildings, and they now have wind in their sails thanks to the president's climate agenda. It's a project that shows an example of what the Inflation Reduction Act is designed to do. Support investments and advance regulations to slash U.S. greenhouse gas pollution by the end of the decade. 
But the focus from the White House is largely on economic transformation. That means that voters who care most about climate issues may not get why this law matters. Approval of Biden's handling of climate change and the environment has actually declined since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed. That's according to Data for Progress, which does work for Democratic candidates and causes. And the drop was particularly steep among young voters. Voters like Cori Gates. He's a 21-year-old student in Colorado Springs who says he's concerned about some of the choices President Biden has made in office. Allowing drilling in the Arctic again. Um, and so it kind of like undermines my faith a little bit. Gates knows about some of the president's emphasis on green jobs, but he's upset that Biden has approved a huge drilling project known as Willow inside of the Arctic Circle in Alaska, which was a violation of one of Biden's campaign pledges. Ed Maybach, he focuses on climate change communication at George Mason University outside of D.C. He said that Biden's broken promises have disappointed some people and that most Democrats still haven't heard much about the president's climate law at all. Zadie, the White House climate advisor, said he expects Biden's climate wins will become clearer to young people with time. I think that young people, thanks to the administration's work, thanks to the president's leadership, are going to be able to get onto a school bus that doesn't pollute. They're going to see the Postal Service fleet that touches every home in every street, every part of the country, go fully electric. The president could not feel more urgently the need to move forward, and he has done just that. I asked Gates, the student concerned about drilling, if he'd consider not voting for the president next year, maybe supporting the eventual Republican nominee instead. No, I don't think that would be a possibility. He doesn't think his friends would either, and he says they're not going to sit things out. I would say most of my friends know that's really important to vote, even if the person who you're voting for is like not perfect, even if not everything is as you would want it. And that's something the president and his team are counting on. Here's how President Biden often explains it. Don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And on climate, for Gates and his friends, they're doing just that. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. A former U.S. Marine is the latest person to sue Fox News for going beyond the news into defamation. NPR's David Folkenflick reports. Ray Epps considered himself an avid Fox News viewer, a two-time voter for former President Donald Trump, a fan of former Fox primetime star Tucker Carlson. According to his attorney, Epps believed the lies on Fox that Trump was cheated in 2020 and attended the rally protesting that election certification. And then Fox lied about him. If you really wanted to figure out what happened on January 6th, Peter Navarro would be the last person you would talk to. Instead, you'd be talking to Ray Epps and various FBI informants. That's Carlson. For more than two years, Carlson drew on material from extreme right-wing conspiracy sites to suggest Epps instigated the violence and was prompted to do so by the FBI or some other federal agency. Here's Carlson on Epps in January 2022. He urged protesters to riot. Video from January 6th shows him at the forefront, right in front of the Capitol, appearing to usher others inside. So he wasn't just someone who was there. He was maybe the central figure there. There's no proof anything Carlson says there is true other than that Epps was present. Fox and Carlson did not respond to NPR's request for comment. Epps's attorney, Michael Teeter, tells NPR that Epps and his wife sold their home in Arizona to flee abusive Trump fans. Teeter alleges Fox allowed Carlson to target Epps to deflect attention from its own actions, angering pro-Trump viewers. On election night 2020, Fox was the first TV network to project Democrat Joe Biden would win the pivotal state of Arizona. 
in April. On the eve of a jury trial, Fox paid $787 million to settle defamation charges filed by Dominion Voting Systems, which had figured prominently in elections conspiracy theories peddled on Fox. The network pushed Carlson off the air just days later. Another multi-billion dollar defamation suit from a second voting tech company looms. David Folkenflik, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. And coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll take a look at yesterday's hearing where FBI Director Christopher Wray denied accusations from some Republican members of Congress that the Bureau is targeting conservatives with investigations. The time is 20 minutes past 7. The future of mining the metals we all need may not be in mountains or deep underground. It might be underwater. We've identified 1.6 billion tons of these polymetallic nodules, like the one in my hand. They literally lie on the ocean floor. That's enough to build around 280 million EV batteries. The controversial future of deep ocean mining. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, partly sunny today, maybe showers this afternoon, highs in the upper 80s, showers likely tonight with lows around 70 degrees, and clouds, possible thunderstorms tomorrow, highs in the 80s, 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Fifty years ago today, the world was introduced to one of rock and roll's greatest voices. Freddie Mercury led Queen until his untimely death in 1991. That iconic band dropped its first album on this day 50 years ago. Now really, that's all the excuse we need to go back into the archives for this 2010 profile of Freddie Mercury by Shireen Marisol Miraji. Mercury is an element that stays fluid when the temperature dips low or soars high. Mercury is the Roman messenger god, wings on his sandals, moving quickly from place to place. Freddie Mercury was the mercurial rock star who chose a stage name in perfect harmony with his voice. always the unstoppable British glam rocker Freddie Mercury. The name we selected for him is Farrell. That was his birth name. That's Mercury's mother, Jerry Bulsara, from the film Freddie Mercury, The Untold Story. 
Faruk Bulsara was Parsi, a group with ties to ancient Persia, but both of his parents were from India. He was born on the East African island of Zanzibar, once a base for Persian Gulf traders. In this very hospital, the government hospital Zanzibar, on the 5th of September 1946, Faruk Bulsara first saw the dazzling light of the world. The film was directed by Rudy Dolezal. He portrays Mercury as an artist who mastered his craft in the West, but came of age in the East. For example, if you listen to a, to a song like Mustafa, you think, I mean, this is very strange. I mean, what, what kind of cultural influences? Where, where does it come from? If you now know that Freddie was born in Zanzibar, then went to India, then came to London, which again was like a culture shock, then you sort of can see it's like a li little bit of multiculturalism that was sort of combined in Freddie Mercury and the way he used his voice. Freddie Mercury's voice was untrained and unpredictable. Mercurial, throttling from an earthy baritone to a wild but heavenly tenor. Singer Adam Lambert spent hours upon hours listening to Queen, trying to figure out how Mercury did it so he could do it for his American Idol audition. Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head. Freddie's voice, is, it has such a texture to it. He kind of like grabs at everything. He squeezes it. A virtual unknown before American Idol, Adam Lambert finished the season belting out We Are the Champions, taking Mercury's place beside Queen guitarist Brian May. But Lambert says no one can sing it quite like Freddie. During We Are the Champions, there's that one part where he goes, of the world, and he holds that out for a really long time, and it kind of like echoes off into the distance. You know what I'm talking about? Instead of just being like open with like world and just singing it through an open throat, he kind of goes like world, like he squeezes it, and it's like it makes it, it gives it this like emotional intensity. That squeeze gave Freddie Mercury the ability to hold a strong, forceful note that also trembled with vulnerability. Not quite vibrato, more like a shout on the verge of crumbling into a sob. The mercurial showman, Freddie Mercury could go from singing a ballad at a baby grand to high-stepping like a rock star, wielding a microphone that looked like it was just ripped from its base. It was about the music, but he also really captivated the audience because he was so electric. That's why he's an icon, because you remembered what he did on stage. He had a presence. Freddie Mercury's stage performance was humorous, camp, but he was very serious about entertaining the fans. <laughs> Freddie's Deo, they used to call him. Because <laughs> he would do the Deo and all that kind of stuff. And the, and the audience would do them straight back at him perfectly every time. And he was always quite amazed by that. Jackie Smith met Mercury in 1982 after responding to a want ad for a Queen fan club manager. 28 years later, she still has the job. 
Smith always had a backstage pass to Queen's Stadium shows, but she preferred to watch Mercury from the stands. The atmosphere was incredible out the front. There were, what, 120,000 people, I think, at the last show, which was Nebworth. And it was like you were still part of an intimate crowd, because Freddie almost reached every single one of those people, even those right at the back. Hundred forty thousand hands in sync doing all we need is was like oh my god. Rudy Dolezal, director of Freddie Mercury: The Untold Story, adds that off stage Mercury was humble and always put his voice before his ego. I can tell you one thing about his voice, which I think is a unique story. We all know that Freddie Mercury had very strange teeth, and we would ask ourselves, well, a guy who is that rich. Why didn't he change his teeth? And he was very afraid that if he would change his teeth, that his particular sound of how his voice sounded would go away. So his voice was more important to him than his looks. And I think that says a lot about the man. The humble showman from the East and the West with a quicksilver voice. Freddie Mercury chose a stage name that represented who he was and how he sang. Shereen Marisol Meraji, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are just ahead. And at 7.45 on Morning Edition, we have a story about the fight by public employee unions in Florida against new labor laws in that state. Next Thursday at WBUR City Space, it's a grilling cook-off competition among a number of Boston-area chefs. There will be plenty to eat for both meat eaters and vegetarians. You can get details and tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at sailgracebailey.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Thousands of former employees at Twitter are suing the company and its owner, Elon Musk. As NPR's Derek Kerr reports, the laid-off staffers say they're owed hundreds of millions of dollars in severance. Elon Musk laid off hundreds of employees when he took over Twitter last fall. At the time, the company said those workers would get at least two months severance in accordance with company policy. But many laid off employees say they haven't been paid that full amount. That's according to a newly filed lawsuit. The suit says those workers have been, quote, left in the dark regarding the severance benefits they had been repeatedly promised. They say the company owes them a combined total of $500 million. Twitter didn't respond to a request for comment. Lawyers for the laid-off workers say thousands of employees have been affected, and so they are seeking class action status for the lawsuit. Dara Kerr, NPR News. 
The National Weather Service is warning of dangerous heat over the next few days in the southwestern U.S. Heat warnings and advisories are in effect in about a dozen states, from Oregon to South Florida. Las Vegas and Phoenix are expecting afternoon highs today near 110 degrees. Forecasters say heat records could be broken this week in areas of Southern California. This is NPR News from Washington. Damage assessments are continuing in areas of Vermont, where this week's flooding caused extensive property losses. Governor Phil Scott surveyed some of the damage yesterday with the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Claire Benedict is co-owner of a bookstore in Montpelier, where they've been cleaning up from the flooding. The floor was just littered with wet books. It's kind of disgusting, and it smells awful. Areas of Vermont received two months' worth of rainfall over a couple of days. President Biden is in Finland today, having left Lithuania following this week's NATO summit. Finland is the latest country to join NATO. It did so in April. Elections officials in Guatemala say the country's presidential election is headed for a runoff between two candidates next month. NPR's Ader Peralta reports on the results of the first round of voting. Sandra Torres, a former first lady who was at one point jailed on corruption charges, came in first, but second came Bernardo Arevalo, who's a reformist who ran on an anti-corruption campaign and who also happens to be the son of Guatemala's first democratically elected president. A court in Guatemala later upended the election results by suspending the political party of Arevalo amid allegations of fraud. The country's Supreme Electoral Tribunal responded, saying the runoff would proceed. Dow futures are up 60 points this morning. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA says it might be another 45 minutes or so before regular service resumes on the red line. Buses are replacing trains between Harvard and Broadway. That's because of a train with a mechanical problem that sent smoke into the Charles MGH station early this morning. The state is working with local farmers to try to help them recoup their losses after this week's devastating floods. Some farms in Western Massachusetts are reporting total losses after rains washed out crops and fields. Susan Scheufele works with Massachusetts farmers as part of the UMass Extension Program, and she says along with this year's harvest, next year's crops might be affected. There may be limitations on if they're able to replant and when and with what crops. And we're sort of working on that guidance now with the Department of Agriculture to give folks the best advice about when it's safe to replant and with what. Some farmers say they were also harmed by a late cold snap this year that killed many of their crops. Massachusetts officials plan to work on making bus stops safer for pedestrians and cyclists. A report from the Department of Transportation shows that almost half of all pedestrian fatalities last year happened within 300 feet of a bus stop. Money for the project will come from the state's Highway Safety Improvement Plan. The time is 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. In sports, the New England Revolution remain unbeaten at home this season. They topped Atlanta United FC 2-1 in Foxborough last night. The Revs will be at home again Saturday when they play D.C. United.
in our forecast. Partly sunny today, maybe some scattered showers this afternoon. Highs in the upper 80s. Tonight, rain is likely. Lows will be around 70 degrees. Storms tomorrow with highs in the 80s, and the threat of rain stays with us into early next week. 74 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. Thailand's parliament is meeting today to choose a new prime minister. Now, the vote comes two months after a general election that saw a progressive move forward party win the most seats and the right to nominate their candidate for the post after nine years of military-backed rule. But two government agencies have thrown the process in doubt by accepting cases that could see the candidate disqualified and the party dissolved. NPR's Michael Sullivan joins us now from Bangkok. Uh, Michael, how do we get here? Pitalim Jonanrat is the leader of the Move Forward Party, which won 151 seats and about 14 million votes, more than anyone, and the candidate backed by the eight-member coalition of pro-democracy parties that emerged from the May vote. And it's his name they're voting on today. There's no other. But yesterday's announcements by the Election Commission and the Constitutional Court, respectively, were a real blow. Pita could end up being disqualified on the first charge for allegedly owning shares in a media company, which is against election rules. And the party could also be disqualified in the other complaint the Constitutional Court accepted, alleging the party essentially tried to overthrow the government with the king as its head when it proposed amending the Les Majestés law that prohibits any criticism of the monarchy. Pita, of course, denies all of these allegations, and the timing of those two announcements just a day before today's vote is giving many people here pause, given Thailand's modern history as a coup-prone country where democratically elected governments don't always last very long. These moves reaffirm our understanding that legal instruments and referee bodies are the real counter-majoritarian safeguards that seem to kick in when the established political order in Thailand seems to be under threat, even if that threat happens to be backed by popular mandate. That's Naponja Tupisitak. He's a research fellow at the ISEAS Yusuf Ishak think tank in Singapore. I think these moves send a very strong signal that Pitai will not be allowed to govern and that the Move Forward Party and the social movements that propelled it to victory in May may have shaken the tree but it's abundantly clear that they will not be allowed to eat the fruits. Michael, how did today's vote look for Pitab before these new developments? Not great, actually, because his coalition only controls 312 seats in the 500-seat elected House, which means he still needed about 65 votes from the unelected 250-member military-appointed Senate to put him over the top. Most of them, having been handpicked by the military, weren't Pita fans to begin with, especially when it came to Article 112, the Les Majesté law. And yesterday's announcements probably didn't win him any new fans in the Senate either. All right. So what happens next? Well, now that today's vote is over with no joy for Pita, Parliament will reconvene next week and try again. The coalition will likely put his name forward again. 
but it might try to choose another from one of the coalition partners. We just don't know. And we also don't know when the constitutional court is going to rule on either of these complaints. So I think we can expect a lot of drama in the coming days and weeks and a lot of unhappy Pita and move forward supporters who will feel disenfranchised if he and the party are denied. Titinang Pung Sudarak is a political analyst at Bangkok's Chulalongkorn University. So in a way, we are living in an uncharted territory because we can have massive demonstrations across the country uh, in protests against uh, subversion of democratic outcome. But, you know, the conventional analysis would say that the powers that be have a way of putting down unrest and carrying on. But either way, more drama ahead. Yeah, seems so. That's NPR's Michael Sullivan in Bangkok. Michael, thanks. You're welcome. The FBI director took questions yesterday before a House committee. This is a regular ritual. Congress is supposed to hold agencies accountable. What was unusual was the ferocious criticism that Christopher Wray faced from House Republicans. You may recall that Wray was nominated by a Republican president and confirmed to the job by a Republican-led Senate. But committee chairman Jim Jordan repeated his party's talking points that the FBI is out to get them. American speech is censored, parents are called terrorists, Catholics are called radicals, and I haven't even talked about the spying that took place of a presidential campaign or the raiding of a former president's home. Democrats are also on this House committee, and one of them, Hank Johnson, said the hearing was really just about politics. Welcome to the legislative arm of the Trump re-election campaign. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh was listening to it all and is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, lots of heat there, but give us some light. What did you learn? I think the hearing really underscored the influence that former President Trump, who's constantly attacking the FBI and the Justice Department, is having on the Republican Party. It was the first time since the GOP took control of the House for Ray to appear. And as you said, Congress has an oversight role for federal agencies. But for Republicans, it was less about examining specific programs and more about using the hearing for hours to repeat their argument that the FBI has created what they say is a two-tiered system of justice. Here's one exchange with Florida Republican Matt Gates and Director Ray. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does you won't not the has qu- no oh, hold interest on. in You won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Ray came prepared for the attacks. He constantly outlined the mission and the priorities for the FBI. And for critics like Gates, he had state-specific statistics about how the FBI is recruiting for jobs in Florida and how the agency's been able to retain agents. Also an unusual exchange there. He's asked a yes-no question. He answers no and is told he didn't answer the question. But how, has the Republican framing of the agency heard it? Ray said it has. I mean, he said the consequence of the increasing criticism is a rise in threats against him, against FBI agents and prosecutors who are being targeted. Because of this, the FBI has had to stand up a special unit to look into these threats against employees and facilities. The roughly six hours of grilling had Ray in the position of constantly responding to a lot of false claims Republicans were making, some personally against him. Here's Ray responding to one of those. The idea that I'm biased against conservatives seems somewhat insane to me, given my own personal background. Ray's personal background is the fact that he's a lifelong Republican. 
He's worked for well-known Republicans like Chris Christie. He was nominated by former President Trump in 2017 after Trump fired then-FBI Director Jim Comey. So help me out with this here. I, as I understand it, some Republicans now want to defund the police. They've picked up the theme of defunding the police in this specific case, of course, the FBI. They want to defund the FBI. Are they going to get anywhere with that? You know, that's an uphill battle in a divided Congress, and Republicans are actually split on that issue. Jordan, for his part, is pushing to zero out money for a planned new FBI headquarters that was supposed to be built outside Washington in an upcoming spending bill. He wants to move it to Alabama. He's also targeting other FBI programs to be defunded. Again, this just shows you how the Republicans are taking their cues from former President Trump. And, you know, Democrats were the one yesterday who've come under attack for defunding the police, and they're the ones who say they need to spend money to create support for the FBI and its mission. NPR's Deidre Walsh, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, the push by some in Congress to insert abortion restrictions and other social issues into a defense spending bill. Our weather forecast, partly sunny today. Some spots might see showers this afternoon. Highs will be in the upper 80s. Tonight, showers likely. Lows around 70 degrees. Storms expected tomorrow with temperatures in the 80s and the threat of rain stays with us into early next week. It is 74 degrees in Boston. In business news this morning, the amount of venture capital raised by Massachusetts startups has dropped by more than 50 percent in the last two years. A report from the National Venture Capital Association shows that companies here raised $8.3 billion so far this year. That's less than half the amount raised during the same period in 2021. The report blames rising interest rates and a decline in tech stocks. The largest chunk of money raised here has gone to startups in the life sciences field. A beloved ice cream stand in Whitman is heading to auction. Peaceful Meadows Ice Cream on Route 18 will close down next month. Then investors will have a chance to bid on it as well as four other properties on the site, and that includes two homes and 50 acres of land. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Florida is one of the only states where the right to join a labor union is enshrined in the state constitution. But a new law is putting the fate of public sector unions at risk. Here's Daniel Rivero from member station WLRN in Miami. On a recent morning, three tables are set up inside the government center in downtown Miami. Staffers and members from a local chapter of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees are trying to convince workers to start paying their union dues. It's part of a rush of activity as Florida's new union law, SB 256, 
went into effect on July 1st. And now it's kind of like do or die because, you know, this law is ultimately an attack on working class people. Theodoria Brown is the president of Local 199, which represents about 7,500 Miami-Dade County employees. People like bus drivers, staff of the medical examiner's office, and court workers. As of July 1st, local governments can no longer withdraw union dues directly from paychecks. So now workers have to go through an extra step, paying monthly dues with their credit cards or checks. Even longtime members have to switch over. And at the same time, at least 60% of people in the bargaining unit have to start paying dues by October. Otherwise, the union could be decertified, throwing labor contracts and the union's very existence into question. Are we at 60%? No. However, I can say that there has been a push and we've signed up 700 new members since we started this whole campaign and right when folks realize that, hey, this is real. They're struggling to get their numbers up in a right-to-work state where paying union dues is optional. The days of piggybacking is long gone because if there's no union contract, it's nothing for any of us to piggyback off of. For years, unions here have negotiated paid holidays, birthday holidays, merit increases, longevity bonuses, sick leave, and more. That could all be gone, says Monica Jemison, who works for the County Department of Finance. You lost all the benefits that you originally have down to basic pay. She convinced one of her co-workers to finally start paying union dues. The new threshold of 60% applies to all public employee unions, except for police, firefighters, and corrections officers. Some of the biggest unions in the state are teachers' unions. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis defended the law, even if it hurts them. He says it would actually help teachers. That is going to lead to more take-home pay uh, for teachers because they're not going to have as many deductions in their paycheck. The teachers' union for the most populous county in the state, Miami-Dade, was barely above 50% last year. So now the union's fighting for its life. They have created so many caveats in this law, purposefully trying to find a way to eradicate and demolish the union. Carla Hernandez-Matz is the president of United Teachers of Dade, representing more than 27,000 teachers and school staffers. Last year, she ran for lieutenant governor as the running mate of Democrat Charlie Crist. We're working nonstop all summer. You know, we're out visiting schools um, during summer school. We're making uh, phone calls. We're phone banking. Uh, we're doing everything that we have to do. There are already two lawsuits moving through the courts. Both take issue with the fact that police and firefighter unions are exempt from the new provisions. For NPR News, I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour on Morning Edition, a story about Sweden betting on extracting rare minerals from deep within the earth for electric energy independence. It's nine minutes before eight. Morning Edition from NPR News doesn't just tell you what's happening across the country and around the world. We go there so you can listen to it for yourself, whether it's rafting surging rivers in California. Keep going. Or taking you to a legendary crab derby in Maryland. You got a squirt bottle behind you and a bobber, okay? 
Go there every weekday with Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories WBUR is following this Thursday morning. President Biden's in Finland this morning to meet with Nordic leaders and boost security cooperation amid threats from Russia. California and Arizona are bracing for a historic heat wave where temperatures could reach over 120 degrees in some places. And people affected by the flooding in Vermont are rushing to clean up before another round of rain hits the state. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. And Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. In our forecast, partly sunny today. Some areas may see showers this afternoon. Highs will be in the upper 80s today. Tonight, a chance of showers. Lows around 70 degrees. Looks like thunderstorms expected tomorrow. Temperatures in the 80s. It's 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. In the year since the U.S. Supreme Court eliminated the constitutional right to abortion, more than a dozen states have made it illegal to provide abortions in most cases. None so far punish women for abortions, but a faction of the anti-abortion movement wants to change that. Here's Rose Conlon of KMUW and the Kansas News Service. Early this year, anti-abortion protesters celebrated the fall of Roe v. Wade at March for Life rallies like this one at the Kansas State House in Topeka. It'll be a cold day and you know what before we stop fighting to protect women and children, including unborn children. Republican State Senate President Ty Masterson and anti-abortion leaders pledged to pursue more abortion restrictions, despite a major loss last year. Voters rejected an effort to rewrite the state constitution that would have made way for a ban. But one man in the crowd thought it was all way too soft on abortion. In a sea of signs with slogans like pro-love, pro-life, Kevin Myers was passing out pamphlets that said, abortion is murder and everybody knows it. I am not a pro-lifer. I am an abolitionist. Myers is a pastor from Kansas City, Kansas. He's crusaded against abortion for most of his life. He and his now wife protested at a local clinic on their first date. In recent years, he's helped pioneer an extreme wing of the anti-abortion movement that calls for a total abortion ban without exceptions, and notably charging women who have abortions with murder. They call themselves abortion abolitionists, borrowing the term from those who fought to abolish slavery. Pro-life to them is a pejorative, and they criticize the movement for settling for laws that merely restrict or regulate abortion. If someone could kill me if I was inconvenient, would I want legislators to gather and say, we're against killing Kevin, and so we're going to make a law that says, if you're going to kill Kevin, you have to think about it for 24 hours. Or you can kill Kevin if you do it with a clean knife. Abolitionist views remain unpopular in the U.S. and within most of the broader anti-abortion movement. But they're gaining traction. And now that Roe is overturned, some see new opportunity for their ideas to take hold. 
Frustration with the mainstream anti-abortion playbook isn't necessarily new. In 1991, Kansas became ground zero in the national abortion fight when tens of thousands of protesters congregated in Wichita for six weeks of civil disobedience called the Summer of Mercy, led by the group Operation Rescue. They surrounded clinics, including one run by Dr. George Tiller, who was known for performing abortions late in pregnancy. Dr. Tiller's attempt to enter the clinic, gate is blocked. The protesters have been informed that they should move and disperse and are not doing so. Tiller was murdered by an anti-abortion extremist nearly two decades later. Troy Newman, president of a modern-day Operation Rescue Group, sees the abolitionists' recent rise as a result of similar, long-standing frustrations with the mainstream anti-abortion movement. They're certainly not aggressive enough. They oftentimes look at abortion as just another political issue, like school choice or a tax break. They don't spend any time in front of that abortion clinic, and they're embarrassed by people like me. What's new is the focus on punishing women, says University of West Georgia history professor Daniel Williams. Even those extreme organizations tended to see the task of abolishing abortion as really focused on shutting down the abortion clinics. And so we've seen a pretty rapid shift since 2016 or so on this particular question. In part, he says, that's because abortion pills have become pretty easy to get. Abolitionists want women prosecuted for sidestepping state abortion bans by ordering the pills online. In a recent YouTube video, Oklahoma-based abolitionist leader T. Russell Hunter filmed himself buying some. So we're going to try to order some abortion pills online in Oklahoma. See how easy this is. This is not a prop. While the traditional anti-abortion movement sees women as, quote, second victims of a predatory abortion industry, abolitionists see women who get abortions as murderers who should be held criminally responsible. In March, a few hundred people from across the country gathered in Wichita for the unveiling of a new national organization called Abolitionists Rising, with Hunter at the helm. The goal is to unify the movement build momentum for a federal abortion ban. If that seems radical, Hunter says, the abolition of slavery once did too. We're going to stop at almost every four-way walk, and we're going to need people on each corner. They fanned out across Wichita with graphic signs reading Bleeding Kansas. They wore body cameras to capture arguments with passersby, posting it all on social media. Protesting outside one clinic, Molly Johnson of Oklahoma City said she thinks abortion is a crime worthy of death. God values human life so highly that when one human chooses to murder another innocent human, they forfeit their own life. So I do support the death penalty for people who have had due process and been convicted of murder. For mainstream anti-abortion groups that long promised overturning Roe would not lead to abortion patients being jailed, the abolitionists represent a messaging nightmare. Americans hold complicated views on abortion. A majority think it should be legal in many cases, but would also like to see restrictions. Doling out death penalty sentences to abortion patients is extremely unpopular. But Mary Ziegler, a law professor at the University of California, Davis, says the abolitionists don't really care about polls. 
they're not even trying to appeal to voters. They're just saying, like, this is what we ought to do, and we ought to try to find legislators who agree with us. Efforts to lobby lawmakers and run primary challengers against Republicans seen as too soft on abortion have led to the introduction of abolitionist legislation in several states, including Kansas. Last year, a Louisiana bill that opened the door to punishing women who had abortions advanced out of committee to the House floor before it was killed. And, Ziegler says, some lawmakers could warm to the idea of criminal penalties if other attempts to make it harder to get around state abortion bans don't pan out, like challenges to the abortion pill mifepristone. The most powerful organizations don't want to punish women. But I think in part what you're seeing is abolitionists waiting in the wings, saying not only that they think that that's the right thing to do, but that they think it's sort of necessary because there's skepticism about whether these other strategies will work. Few analysts see abolitionists achieving their goals anytime soon. But they could influence public opinion and make strict abortion bans look moderate in comparison. For NPR News, I'm Rose Conlin in Wichita. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm e. Martinez. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Weather forecast is calling for partly sunny skies today. Temperatures in the upper 80s. Rain overnight tonight with lows near 70 degrees. It's 74 degrees in Boston at 8 o'clock. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden caps off his trip to Europe with a summit of Nordic leaders and promises to boost security cooperation. It's Thursday, July 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, cleaning up from the devastating flooding in Vermont. It seems like some of the stores, this is just too much and we may be done. I'm kind of figuring that one out. Also this hour, a lake in Canada shows how humans have affected the Earth. To say, hey, wake up, like we have to really sort of grapple with the fact that we have changed the face of the Earth. Plus, will Meta's new app Threads be a friendly alternative to Twitter? Lots of political commentators have gotten very used to the blood sport of Twitter, and they're going to want to bring that kind of fighting over to this new community. Forecast says partly sunny today, but rain this weekend. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is in Finland on the last stop of a trip to Europe. He's talking with allies about the NATO summit that just concluded in Lithuania. NATO countries have agreed to accept Sweden as a new member. The formerly non-aligned nation sought to join NATO after Russia invaded Ukraine last year. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says Russian President Vladimir Putin's bid to limit NATO's influence has failed. The reality is that Putin now is getting the exact opposite of what he uh, wanted when he went to war against Ukraine. He's getting more NATO and more uh, uh, members uh, in NATO. So it demonstrates that it was a big strategic failure of uh, Putin to invade Ukraine. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. 
The National Weather Service says excessive heat is spreading through western and southern states today. Dangerously hot temperatures could hit near 100 degrees today from Oregon and California to Alabama. Southern Florida is getting unusually hot weather, too. Forecasters say the heat will persist through early next week. A federal jury is weighing whether convicted Pittsburgh synagogue shooter Robert Bowers is eligible for the death penalty. From member station WESA, Oliver Morrison has more. The key issue was whether Bowers had formed an intent to kill 11 Jewish worshippers in 2018. The prosecution argued the evidence of Bowers' intent was overwhelming. They point to Bowers' months of planning, scouting alternative sites to attack, anti-Semitic comments posted on the Internet, and selection of a time and place that would inflict maximum damage. The defense argued that Bowers' brain scans and troubled childhood showed evidence of schizophrenia. They say that later led him to form delusions about the Jewish people and that damage to his brain prevented him from being able to genuinely consider not carrying out his attack. If the jury agrees with prosecutors, Bowers could be sentenced to the death penalty. For NPR News, I'm Oliver Morrison in Pittsburgh. A report out today from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows an increase in rates of developmental disabilities among children in the United States. Drew Hawkins of the Gulf States Newsroom prepared this report. Diagnoses for developmental disabilities in children are on the rise, according to a new CDC report out today. The study used data collected from the National Health Interview Survey and found that between 2019 and 2021, there was a significant increase in children aged 3 to 17 years old. But researchers say higher rates may actually be a good thing. So I do think it's actually encouraging. Dr. Ben Zablotsky is a lead author on the report. Even though rates are going up, it might be that those individuals who needed the services are now getting those services and getting those diagnoses that they might not have gotten in the past. Zablotsky says the report also highlights the need for more mental health screenings and services. For NPR News, I'm Drew Hawkins. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Well, there are some problems for morning commuters today, two specifically. First, we're going to tell you about the red line. Service is getting back to normal. On the red line of the T, buses replaced trains for about 90 minutes this morning after a fire under a train at the Charles MGH station. The Boston Fire Department says no one was hurt. Everyone got out safely. Right now, the T says red line trains are not stopping at the Charles MGH station, so maintenance teams can do some cleaning. And secondly, it's going to be a slow commute for people who use the Ted Williams Tunnel. State highway officials say the westbound lanes of the tunnel will be totally shut down in about 10 minutes from now at 8.15. That's a shutdown of the Ted Williams Tunnel westbound at 8.15, so crews can deal with a medical emergency. The tunnel's being used by a lot of drivers as a detour because of the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. The state is selecting 10 communities to become part of a climate-friendly pilot program. Those chosen will be able to mandate that all new buildings be fossil fuel-free. At a Senate hearing this week, many local leaders said that it was important for equity and the environment to expand the number of participating cities and towns. More from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. When lawmakers created the pilot program last year, they said that preference would be given to the 10 cities and towns that had previously tried to create all-electric mandates. But critics point out that most of those municipalities are affluent suburbs in eastern Massachusetts. Jeff Cohen is a city councilor in Salem, which wants to be included. What message is the legislature sending vulnerable communities 
that have a high ratio of low-income residents that the affluent communities can make decisions we can't. Cities like Boston, Cambridge, and Northampton have also said they want to be part of the pilot program. Cohen says any community that wants to be included should be able to join. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Massachusetts' Office for Refugees is planning to open more welcome centers to connect homeless and migrant families with shelter and resources. One such center already exists in Alston, and the Boston Globe reports it's not clear how many new centers the state is planning or where exactly they'll be located. The news follows a policy from Boston Medical Center that bars unhoused families from sheltering in its emergency departments. Federal prosecutors say they will not seek the death penalty against the men charged with killing Boston mob boss James Whitey Bulger. Bulger was killed inside a federal prison in West Virginia in 2018. He was 89 years old at the time. He had just been transferred there from another prison in Florida. Bulger was serving a life sentence for racketeering and extortion. The trial of the two Massachusetts prisoners accused of killing Bulger is scheduled to start next year. A Justice Department review found that mismanagement and incompetence by the Federal Bureau of Prisons led to Bulger's murder. Organizers of this month's national NAACP convention in Boston expect that up to 10,000 people will attend. Boston chapter President Tanisha Sullivan told WBUR's Radio Boston she hopes Massachusetts residents will be there. We are aiming to make this convention the most accessible and inclusive convention in NAACP history. And we've been at this for 114 years. So it really is our goal to ensure that all of Massachusetts knows that um, that everyone is invited. Keynote speakers include Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The convention takes place July 26th through August 1st. The time is eight minutes past eight. WBUR supporters include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. In sports, the New England Revolution beat Atlanta United FC 2-1 in Foxborough last night. The Revs will play again Saturday at home against D.C. United. Our weather forecast, partly sunny today, highs in the upper 80s. There could be scattered showers in some communities this afternoon. Tonight, looks like rain is likely. Temperatures around 70 degrees. Storms in our forecast tomorrow, possible thunderstorms. Highs in the 80s and the threat of rain stays with us through the weekend. It is 74 degrees in Boston. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach Books. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Threads, the new social media platform, is setting records for people signing up. But unlike Twitter, its competitor Threads says it will not emphasize news. We'll ask what that means in a moment. This network will always emphasize news. And now we hear from Congress where culture wars are complicating an effort to approve funding for the United States military. 
Now, the House of Representatives was supposed to vote this week on the authorization of $886 billion to pay for the U.S. military, but some Republicans want to amend the big authorization bill to shape military policy on things such as abortion access, transgender health care, and diversity in recruiting. Now, that's triggering a warning from Representative Adam Smith, a top Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee. A small group of people isn't just saying we want to vote on things that we care about. They want to say, if we don't get what we want, we'll tear the whole thing down. Mariana Sotomayor is a congressional reporter for The Washington Post and is covering this. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so how many Republicans are trying to make culture war changes to this bill and who are they? There are several in the far right flank of the Republican conference who would like to amend the NDAA. I think the most notable issue is that there are dozens of House Republicans, some in the far right, some in the more mainstream Republicans in the conference who actually want to change an abortion Pentagon policy to actually reverse a policy that reimburses service members for travel expenses if they get an abortion. Now, this is a pretty controversial issue. There are some Republicans like Nancy Mace who has said she will vote against this provision. Republicans, of course, can only lose four votes. But more notably, Democratic Caucus Chairman Pete Aguilar said yesterday that if that amendment is adopted, that would likely be a red line for the party, meaning Republicans will have to rely on 218 votes to pass it through their own majority. Abortion isn't the only contentious issue. There are several others, including on LGBT rights that are particularly targeting trans service members. And there's other issues too, like rolling back diversity and inclusion initiatives. And I should also mention, there's a lot still focused on foreign policy. I want to follow up on one of the measures that you mentioned, military funding for service members who travel to get an abortion. This is essentially a follow-up to the Supreme Court's ruling on abortion rights, correct? Because now abortion is legal in some states, illegal in other states. That's exactly correct. But this puts a lot of swing district Republicans, particularly those in districts that Biden won in 2020, in pretty perilous positions. They don't want to vote on any kind of whether it's abortion or other social issues that could put them in a pretty tough spot in the re-election campaigns. And this is even Republicans who oppose abortion rights generally. They don't want to bring it up in this bill, which is also about mainly about weapons and pay for service members and funding the military and military operations around the world. It's something that needs to pass. So what does House Speaker Kevin McCarthy want? Is he trying to get this bill through? That is exactly what he's trying to do. And he's walking a pretty thin line here as he has often been seen on different issues. But of course, the NDAA is bipartisan. It's actually one of the very few must-pass pieces of legislation that actually do pass with Democratic and Republican votes. That could be in peril if a number of amendments do get introduced into the underlying bill, which, as you says, focuses a lot more on what the Pentagon can do. Now, of course, this bill is going to change because the Senate is involved here. They are drafting their own version without any of these poison pill amendments. Mariana Sotomayor of The Washington Post, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
People on social media have intently followed a war between platforms. Now, Twitter is a huge cultural force, the arena for news and politics. But just as the platform is disrupted by the erratic moves of new owner Elon Musk, a new platform is attracting a lot of users. Threads has become the most rapidly downloaded app ever. It's run by the folks who make Facebook and looks a lot like Twitter. But its managers say they do not want to emphasize news and politics. Well, how does that work? NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen is here. Bobby. Good morning. Hey, Steve. So we're talking about Meta, which owns Facebook, which owns Instagram, and also now runs Threads. Why would they avoid news and politics on that platform? Well, Meta learned long ago that if they de-emphasize politics and news, they could make more money. When people share content about influencers, about celebrities, or when people are chatting about or sharing photos about friends and family, that's what really keeps people engaged. That's what keeps people scrolling, and that's what keeps the advertising dollars rolling in. So Meta executive Adam Useri, when he announced that Threads was going to not put an emphasis on news and politics, he had an eye towards making more money, honestly. But he also you know, thought that that would be a way to avoid nasty political debates and avoid scrutiny. As I'm listening to you, though, I'm thinking about a reality of social media. We're told that we make social media, but really the experience is shaped a lot by the companies and their algorithms and which posts they promote or which posts they downgrade. That's right. I mean, Facebook years ago made a decision to downrank hard news and instead put the emphasis on interactions between friends and family, uh, wedding announcements, vacations and the like. And that's what really keeps people engaged. I mean, politics and news is what made Twitter so relevant and so powerful, quite the opposite. I talked to Alex Stamos. He's the former chief security officer at Facebook. And he says, you know, threads can try to turn the algorithmic knobs up or down on different types of discussions. But Stamos, who now leads Stanford's Internet Observatory, says with so many people coming over from Twitter, it's really just a matter of time before Threads becomes like Twitter. Lots of political commentators have gotten very used to the blood sport of Twitter, and they're going to want to bring that kind of fighting over to this new community. And whether or not the platform can actually shape that is a really open question. If Threads manages to tamp down the ugliness, what would be there instead? Threads, uh, it can become overrun with influencer content, with memes, with jokes, with people just tweeting kind of about very trivial affairs. It's lighter fare, right? And Threads wants to keep it that way. But let me summarize what Sol Messing told me. He's a former top researcher at Facebook. And he says if news and politics are de-emphasized, it's hard to imagine how the app doesn't make society dumber. Now, as an academic at NYU, Messing has researched how social media shapes the public's understanding of news and events and politics and what you and I and everyone see on social media influence what we think about the world. And here's what his recent findings have found. When folks see more political content in their news feeds, they tend to uh, become more interested in politics. They tend to develop more consistent policy preferences. Uh, they tend to report voting at higher rates. Hmm. Yeah, so Messing is saying that if Threads does displace Twitter, the politics and news go to the wayside, the public could become less engaged with policy and politics. And you know what? They might even vote less. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This next story poses big questions about the record that we as human beings are leaving on the world.
scientists study past eras by the record left behind in the Earth, you know, fossils and other items. And now some scientists are aiming to define when we have added enough to that record that we should call this the age of humans. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports. Humans have so profoundly changed the Earth that our soot and our plastics and our radioactive fallout have made it into the very rocks and ice and mud that form our planet. And for decades, scientists have debated whether that means we're officially in a new geologic time period, the Anthropocene. This week, geologists got one step closer to saying yes. They proposed that the age of humans began in the 1950s with the nuclear era. I feel deeply ambivalent about that. Nicholas Kawa is an anthropologist at Ohio State. He's ambivalent because geologists chose the time period when plutonium and other radioactive material from nuclear blasts shows up in the geologic record around the world. Colin Waters is the chair of the Anthropocene Working Group, which is in charge of making the new epoch official. He said there were other options, but radioactivity is the clearest global signature that humans have left on the planet. It first shows up in the 1940s, but... It's not really until you get to about 1952 with the big thermonuclear detonations uh, that you start to see these appearing everywhere. Basically, the early 50s was the moment that humans left their mark on the whole planet for the first time. To officially define a geologic epoch, scientists have to agree on one place that acts as a sort of calibration site. This week, Waters and his colleagues announced that site, a lake in Canada with layers and layers of undisturbed mud that have collected human pollution and radioactive elements. Kawa, the anthropologist, says defining the age of humans by atomic bombs raises some tough questions that go way beyond geology. What does this mean for how we understand ourselves in relationship to the planet, um, who we are as a species? Formally naming the Anthropocene is a reminder of the other ways that humans have transformed the planet, he says, through climate change and ecological destruction. To say, hey, wake up, like we have to really sort of grapple with the fact that we have changed the face of the earth (laughs) and We have created conditions that might not be hospitable for ourselves or other species, you know, further down the road. For their part, geologists will vote on the official Anthropocene designation next summer. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. This afternoon on All Things Considered, some states are cracking down on the supply of a drug used by veterinarians to sedate large animals. Apparently, some people are using that drug to make illicit opioids. Veterinarians ask what happens when animals can't get it. Stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just turn on a radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, we'll have the latest on the contract talks affecting Hollywood. It's 21 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org.
The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. And it's a mess on the biggest detour for drivers trying to get around the Sumner shutdown this morning. State Highway officials say the westbound Ted Williams Tunnel is closed right now because of a medical emergency. It is expected to reopen in just a couple of minutes. Forecast says partly sunny skies today, maybe a few showers in spots this afternoon. Temperatures in the upper 80s, 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting The Miracle Club, a new film starring Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, and Laura Linney, about four women who travel to Lourdes in search of a miracle, starts Friday everywhere, only in theaters. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. We're going to take a trip deep underground to a vast mine in Sweden holding minerals that are key in making tech products from phones to electric cars. Around the world, countries are scrambling for them. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam went to see the enormous efforts Sweden is making to develop its own supply. One of the rescue chambers are over there. Ulrika Hutanska shifts into low gear as the pickup truck we're riding in heads deep into the LKAB mine. She's a communications person at this state-owned iron ore mine located in Sweden's northernmost city, Kiruna, north of the Arctic Circle. It'll be a half-hour drive down to the bottom, and it's a strange experience. Okay, so we're heading down lower now. It gets drier as well. You can feel it on your skin. But it's still dark. There's quite a bit of dust in the air now. We're going down, down, down. Hutanzika says there are about 25 miles worth of underground tunnels. She's used to being in this environment. The first time it felt, uh, I wasn't scared, but it's it's an awkward feeling. Okay, now as we're getting lower, I can feel my ears popping, but we're still, we still have a long way to go till we get to the bottom. The tunnel is dark with a low ceiling, and it twists and turns as we descend. Our headlights pick up the reflectors on the reinforced grey stone walls. Finally, we reach the bottom. So we have arrived now. We are now 4,000 feet under the earth right now. This is actually quite a brightly lit place, and there's some miners here, and it looks like they're just waiting outside the cafeteria because there's got to be food around here. The Kiruna mine is already one of the world's largest sources of iron ore, but they've made a game-changing discovery here. Earlier this year, Sweden announced that mixed in with the iron ore were what's known as rare earths, 
which are critical for the transition to clean energy. They're used in motors that power wind turbines and electric vehicles. The discovery led the company to believe there's a huge deposit further underground. We knew that there was something out there, but we didn't know how much and uh, at what depth and uh, things like this. So it was still quite much an unknown. Laura Lowry, a field exploration manager at the mine, says LKAB was aware of some rare earth deposits back in the 1960s as it was mining the iron ore. Lowry says three years ago, they started taking a closer look. The results were good, 1.3 million tons of rare earths. Lowry says it's the largest reported deposit in Europe. We have these numbers for this deposit. We know that this much we have. But exploration is a long process. In a small office in the vast underground complex, Jim Lidstrom heads up a team digging five miles of tunnels towards the rare earths. He says they clear just 15 feet a day. It's uh, drilling, blasting. It's like putting cement on the walls to do reinforcement. Right. So how long a job will this be? My guess would be around maybe six to seven years. Until the exploration tunnel is done, then the real work starts. And that'll be extracting the rare earths, if the company decides there are enough of good quality to make the mining economically viable. So all this effort is still a bit of a gamble, but it could pay off big for Sweden. Back on the surface in Stockholm, Ebbe Bush is the Minister for Energy, Business and Industry. She says Sweden needs to be energy independent, a message driven home after Russia cut off energy supplies to Europe. It's been a harsh reminder to choose your friends wisely. And I would say that Sweden, we have really drawn a very tough lesson in terms of being so highly dependent off of Russia. But Sweden is also concerned about dependence on China, especially its grip on critical metals and minerals like the rare earths. Erika Ingvald, the head of mineral information and mining industry at the Geological Survey of Sweden in the college town of Uppsala, says Sweden currently gets 98% of its rare earth supply from China. We are so dependent on uh, minerals from China. China is known for using um, their raw materials, for instance, in geopolitical challenges, if you like, as a weapon. Earlier this month, China started limiting exports of two rare earths, gallium and germanium, which are used in semiconductors and electric vehicles. China also dominates rare earth processing, says Ingvald. The idea here is now to increase processing capacity in Europe. So, for instance, LKAB has bought into a company in Norway who are going to do this processing of those minerals. So we keep the value chain in Europe. But that could have a cost, not just in money and investment, but on the environment here. The mining is taking place on indigenous lands. So I'm just going to feed my horse and then we could sit down and talk. Matty Blindberg runs a small ranch about 25 miles from Kiruna. Well, what's special with the Icelandic is they have, um, they are five gated. Normally, horses have, what do you say, for three. Berg is a Sami, the main indigenous group here in Sweden's Lapland, and chairman of the National Reindeer Herding Association. He says Sweden knew about the rare earth deposits, so making a big deal of the find now is a public relations ploy. And they want to put pressure on the Swedish politician to take shortcuts in the permission process, because it's a quite long process for, for fine of the mineral to, to the 
really mining it. So they want to short up this time. We move over to a table alongside a clear blue lake. It's an idyllic setting. Berg worries about what mining the rare earths will do to the Arctic environment and the reindeer herding. More people, more human activities disturb the wildlife. You have more infrastructure coming in, more cars, more trucks, more trains, more railroads. Berg says the Sami community has held discussions with the Swedish government and is looking for recognition of its land and water rights. But with so much riding on the rare earths for Sweden's energy future, the mining continues. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Kiruna, Sweden. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Today's top stories are just ahead and in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a story about cleaning up from the devastating flooding in Vermont. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Life-threatening heat is expected today in areas of the southwestern U.S. Yuma, Arizona is expecting an afternoon high of 112 degrees. Las Vegas and Phoenix are expecting temperatures near 110. The National Weather Service says heat records could be broken this week in parts of Southern California. Brian Ferguson is with the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services. Extreme heat is a killer. More than any disaster we face, we see more fatalities from heat. Heat warnings and advisories are in effect in about a dozen states, including nearly all of California, Nevada, Arizona and Texas, and the entire states of Louisiana and Arkansas. President Biden says he believes NATO has never been stronger. Biden was speaking today in Helsinki alongside Finland's President Sally Niinistö following this week's NATO summit in Lithuania. Finland joined the alliance little more than three months ago in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I remember the conversation you and I had when you called to come to the White House to talk about being a member of NATO. And it took me about three seconds to say yes. Sweden is expected to join NATO soon. At the NATO summit, the alliance signaled its intention to eventually invite Ukraine to become a member of NATO. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Well, we have some information for those traveling this morning. The commute's a bit of a mess in several different places. The westbound Ted Williams Tunnel was briefly closed a few minutes ago because of a medical emergency. It is the main detour for drivers trying to get around the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. Right now, backups begin at Boardman Street in East Boston. On the T, Red Line trains are bypassing the Charles. Charles MGH station. That's because of a train fire there earlier this morning. No one was hurt. And service is suspended right now on the E branch of the Green Line between Heath Street and Brigham Circle because of a disabled train. Riders are being asked to use the Route 39 bus instead. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is slowly releasing more than 60 billion gallons of water from dams in New England after this week's drenching rains. The goal is to keep the dams from overflowing into areas already hit hard by flooding. Scott Oconee is deputy engineer for the New England Army Corps District. And what we've been able to do at at many of our dams is to start to make small releases from our storage, still keeping 
the flows downstream within channel capacity so that we're not causing additional flooding. The National Weather Service predicts more rain will fall through the weekend, and that could lead to more flooding. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on Morning Edition, we'll get an update on flood cleanup in central Vermont. A new police report finds that Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara was driving more than double the speed limit when she crashed her car into a house in Jamaica Plain. The report shows Lara was driving at least 53 miles an hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone last month. Lara was driving an unregistered, uninsured car with a revoked license. Her son was in the car riding without a booster seat, and he had to get stitches. Lara has not commented on the latest report, but apologized to her constituents. She is due in court next week. The Boston Police Department wants to hire more women. The department tells the Boston Herald that it is committed to having 30 percent of its officers be women by 2030. Right now, 15 percent of all Boston police officers are women, and that's just slightly higher than the national average. The time right now, 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 30th, amrep.org. In sports, the New England Revolution remain unbeaten in 11 home games this year. They topped Atlanta United FC 2-1 in Foxborough last night. The Revs will host D.C. United on Saturday. Celtics won their first game of the NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. Vegas, they beat the L.A. Lakers 95-90 to last night. In our forecast, partly sunny today, temperatures in the upper 80s. We have a chance of showers overnight tonight, lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, showers, maybe thunderstorms. Temperatures in the 80s, and looks like the threat of rain stays with us through the weekend. It is 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Guatemala's presidential election is getting even more complicated. Yeah, we've been talking about the Central American country, which is one of the sources of migration to the United States. The country held the first round of a presidential election surrounded by chaos. Last night, officials finalized the results of that first round, leaving two candidates for a runoff. But a court says one of the two candidates is disqualified. So what does that mean? NPR is Ada Peralta joins us. Hey there, Ada. Hey, Steve. How did Guatemala get to this point? The first uh, round of elections was total chaos, as you guys mentioned. Courts disqualified three leading candidates uh, in decisions that were widely viewed as political and that they were seen as a ploy by the country's political elites to remain in power and assure that they would never be tried for corruption as they had in the past. And a lot of Guatemalans had lost hope. They viewed uh, most of the nearly two dozen candidates as corrupt, and they were sure that the political elite would get their way, that one of them would win. But the results, Steve, were stunning. Yes, Sandra Torres, a former first lady who was at one point jailed on corruption charges, came in first. But second, 
came Bernardo Arevalo, who's a reformist, who ran on an anti-corruption campaign, and who also happens to be the son of Guatemala's first democratically elected president. No one expected that, not even his party. But almost as soon as that happened, the political elite went into overdrive, trying to overturn the results. They banded together to pressure the courts, to pressure the Electoral Commission not to certify the votes. So the effort to stop this reformist candidate seems to be a source of the chaos, but is it working for the elites? I mean, remember how I told you that the courts had uh, thrown out promising candidates before the first round of elections? Well, they're trying that again. Prosecutors accused Semilla, the party of the reformist candidate. They accused the party of fraud, and the court ordered electoral authorities to stop him from participating in politics. Uh, but then things got more complicated. Uh, just after that court decision, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal certified the results of the first round and said that Bernardo Arevalo, the reformist, would indeed move on to the second round. Arevalo was on CNN in Español last night, and he said this was a done deal. Let's listen. De ninguna manera vamos a obedecer una eh, decisión espuria ilegal como la que ha sido este, emitida. He said they would not obey a spurious and illegal decision that came from a court known for making political decisions. Nonetheless, it is a court. It's made its decision. So where does that leave us for the second round of the election? That is the question that everyone in Guatemala is asking themselves. Electoral officials uh, were asked if they would listen to the court, and they had no good answers. They said they didn't know if the court order held any sway. So the best answer I can give you is that this election is in limbo. But the bigger picture here is that over the last decade, Guatemala has suffered major blows to what used to be a promising democracy. And just a couple of months ago, there was very little hope that Guatemala's democracy could be saved. But this election has actually become a real test with huge stakes. It's an election that might very well mark the end of Guatemala's democracy, or it could give it another chance. NPR's Ada Peralta, thanks so much. SAG-AFTRA is Hollywood's biggest union. Their contract expired at midnight, and their negotiators are recommending they go on strike. Now, the SAG-AFTRA National Board will meet later this morning to vote on it. If the actors strike, they'll join the writers' union on the picket line, and showbiz may end up with its first double strike in more than 60 years. Federal mediators joined the talks yesterday. Now, for more on the mediation process, here's Joshua Flax. He's the deputy director for policy and strategy at the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service. Joshua, are federal mediators brought in only when talks have completely broken down? Uh, good morning, and thank you for having me. Federal mediators can be brought in at any point in the process when a business or an enterprise and their labor union feel that the quality of their negotiations has gone down and that the parties need kind of some extra help at the negotiating table, bearing in mind that those mediators are not making any specific decisions for the parties. They're like an extra pair of hands at the negotiating table. Would you rather you to be brought in earlier than later, though? It really depends on the situation and when the parties are ready. I suppose, generically speaking, earlier can be more helpful, but sometimes the lead negotiators on both parties actually think that they're making more progress and they want to keep trying to reach agreement uh, without having a third party helper in the room. And so often our mediators do hear from uh, the parties to a collective bargaining agreement kind of at the last minute, could be within the last few days uh, of the negotiation process where the lead negotiators suddenly realize 
that uh, the issues uh, are a bit of a bridge too far at that moment, and it would be helpful to have the mediator in there. And in those last-minute situations, is it usually one little thing that's holding things up or are sides way, way apart? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, It could be either. (laughs) It could be uh, that there's some important uh, economic piece of the collective bargaining agreement, such as wages or health care, that are keeping the parties apart, and and that's the only thing that they still have to negotiate. Or it it could be a range of issues about how that enterprise or how that industry operates, uh, where there are still many things left to talk about. And for whatever reason, uh, the quality of those collective bargaining negotiations had degraded over time to the point where the parties were unable to make significant progress. Is a mediator's job a little more difficult when, say, in this situation, when it comes to actors and studios, you've got people that are very famous, very wealthy and very accustomed to getting what they want when they want it? (laughs) <laughs> that That's an excellent question. You know, I can't comment on any specific set sure. of negotiations, but for an industry such as for entertainment, our mediators have also been heavily involved in professional sports, collective bargaining negotiations over many decades. In industries like that, you know, there's a, a range of uh, members of the bargaining unit. Uh, there, there's high earner, uh, very uh, well-known, and then there's low earner, uh, kind of journeymen, journeywomen, uh, workers at the bottom end. And for our mediators, their focus is on helping the parties reach agreement at the collective bargaining table, irrespective of who they are. We believe that every American business and uh, labor union uh, that works for that business uh, deserves the same level of service. And what can mediators do to get negotiations started again once they've stopped? Some of the mediation work is done in the room in what we call a joint session with both parties there. Very often when the negotiations are stuck, the mediators will separate the parties into a private caucus and they'll do a lot of uh, reality testing with both parties, but they'll do it privately. They'll check on their proposals. They'll ask if the proposals have been prioritized and uh, they'll uh, make some process moves sometimes even using what uh, mediators call shuttle diplomacy going between the private caucuses to help the parties get those negotiations back on track. Joshua Flax is the Deputy Director for Policy and Strategy at the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service. Joshua, thanks. Thanks for having me. And a quick note for transparency, many of us here at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, but broadcast journalists are under a different contract, meaning that we would not be expected to strike. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes on the Marketplace Morning Report, the oldest craft brewery in the U.S. says it's shutting down because of inflation, increased competition, and people drinking less beer. Our forecast, partly sunny today, temperatures in the upper 80s. We have a chance of showers overnight tonight with lows around 70 degrees and clouds with showers, maybe thunderstorms tomorrow. Highs in the 80s. It is 74 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. In business news, women are still underrepresented in the boardrooms of Massachusetts' largest companies. That's according to recent data from Deloitte and the Alliance for Board Diversity. WBUR's Zeninjor Enwameka reports that their analysis shows some gains over the years, but also says more work needs to be done. 
Women hold 31% of board seats for Fortune 500 companies in Massachusetts. That's comparable to national figures. The state exceeds the national rate when it comes to Asian board members, but it falls short in Black and Latino representation. Jess Ackerman is with Deloitte. The rate of change continues to be slow. If we were to look at this and project out over a horizon, it would take until 2060 at the current rate of change for Fortune 500 boards to be representative of the population as a whole. Ackerman says mentorship, networking opportunities, and professional development are key to create a more diverse pipeline for corporate boards. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The time is 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The federal government is pledging to support people in Vermont affected by this week's historic flooding. The administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Deanne Criswell, toured the damage in central Vermont yesterday. You know, there's nothing like standing right in it, right? Literally, as, as we're here right now, to really understand, truly understand what these families are going through. And we know that this is a really hard time for them. And so we have a lot of different tools that we'll work with the governor on bringing in to make sure that we can support them um, and help them on their road to recovery. One of the hardest hit places is the capital, Montpelier. As Peter Hirschfeld reports, many businesses and residents aren't sure when or if they'll recover. The water was mostly gone from city streets in downtown Montpelier by Wednesday morning, replaced by a thick layer of sludge that smelled like a mixture of sewage and wet mushrooms. Industrial cleanup equipment hummed in the background as business owners like Maya Bofa returned to their establishments for the first time since the Winooski River crested its banks on Monday afternoon. Yeah, you want to see my salon? Yes. Over there. Go see my salon. <laughs> Cash. The water was up to here. Bofa points to a black arrow she drew on the wall to mark the high water spot. It's about two feet above a plaque commemorating peak water levels during the historic flood of 1992. She knew the flood was coming and tried to prepare. We, we raised some stuff up, but we didn't expect it to be this high. And much of the equipment at the salon she's owned for nine and a half years, called Ondine, is a total loss. Like a lot of business owners here, Bofa's not sure what's next. It seems like some of the stores, this is just too much and we may be done. I'm kind of figuring that one out. Montpelier is regularly named one of the best small downtowns in the United States by publications like USA Today and Travel and Leisure. And the small, independently owned businesses that line the downtown lend this place its charm. Many restaurants and stores had only just recovered from the devastating effects of COVID. Katie Trouts is the executive director of a local business association called Montpelier Alive. She says this latest hit may be too powerful a blow for many. There are many businesses that have recently expanded and invested a lot in their expansion or their opening of new business. And um, it's just really sad to see the possibility of them not recouping that and recovering after this. 
There is one thing working in business's favor right now, and that's the prospect of free labor. Trout says Montpelier Alive has fielded requests from more than 1,000 people wanting to volunteer. Wes Hamilton co-founded a popular restaurant called Three Penny Tap Room in 2009. He was taking a smoke break outside the entrance on Wednesday morning. All of our kitchen equipment is turned over and on the other side of the room and, um, you know, I, there's stuff everywhere. I, you know, it looks like a really intense episode of one of those hoarder shows. As floodwaters peaked on Tuesday, Hamilton says he wasn't sure about the future of Three Penny. By Wednesday afternoon, he was feeling more optimistic, thanks in part to the scores of people who've reached out to offer assistance. It's the outpouring of, of people saying they're ready and willing to, to help with whatever we need is um, tremendous. So, um, I, you know, one way or another, we'll, we'll get it done. The downtown is a residential area as well, so businesses aren't the only ones reeling from the flood. Ian and Billy Joe Quinlan have lived in an apartment on Elm Street for the last 14 years. By 10 or so Tuesday morning, there were two feet of water on their ground floor. Like, we don't have renter's insurance, so we're just going to have to look into, like, FEMA and any kind of assistance programs that are coming out, but it's, it's not like it's easy to find. The Quinlans will live across town with Ian's mother until they're able to return to their home, but they have no idea when that'll be. And like so many residents of this hard-hit city, it's unclear when or if things will return to normal. That was Peter Hirschfeld reporting from Montpelier, Vermont, for the New England News Collaborative. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on a key election in Thailand, one that could decide the future of democracy in that country. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. Here are some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning here at WBUR. President Biden in Finland today to showcase that country's new membership to the NATO alliance. For the first time, the FDA has approved a birth control pill that's available without a prescription. And Hollywood actors vote on whether or not to strike after the sag after contract negotiation deadline expired last night. Stay up to date on the news all day, either here on 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR mobile app. Russian cyber attacks have failed to be a major factor in the war against Ukraine, but cyber criminals with ties to Russia are ramping up ransomware attacks. So far this year, we're tracking at least $450 million in ransomware payments through June, really seeing an uptick in average demands. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, partly sunny skies today. Highs in the upper 80s. Chance of showers tonight with lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow looks like rain, maybe thunderstorms. Temperatures in the 80s and scattered showers and the threat of rain stay with us until the middle of next week. It is 75 degrees right now in Boston. TV and film production could soon shut down with a new strike looming today. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indeed, a hiring solution that helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash hire. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. The union representing film, television, and streaming video actors is expected to call a strike today. More than five weeks of negotiations have not produced a deal with an alliance representing studios and streaming companies. Now actors are poised to join Hollywood writers on the picket lines. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. The negotiating committee for SAG-AFTRA, the union representing actors, last night unanimously voted to recommend a strike after last-minute talks and efforts to bring in a federal mediator failed to avoid what increasingly appeared inevitable. The previous labor agreement, which had been extended for two weeks, expired at midnight. An official strike authorization is likely later today. Actors would join writers who have already been striking since early May in what would be the first double strike in Hollywood since 1960. Back then, writers and actors were demanding a restructuring of how they're paid to account for film being sold to TV networks. Today, they're demanding changes tied to the rise of streaming services and the potential use of artificial intelligence. Meanwhile, media and streaming giants are facing a financial squeeze. For years, they spent liberally to build subscribers, but they've been losing money, and Wall Street is now demanding better financial outcomes. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. I can't do better than San Francisco. I should go to this next story, uh, a disclosure. Union employees here at Marketplace are members of SAG-AFTRA. Markets S&P futures are up three-tenths of a percent, and we just got a reading on inflation at the wholesale level. There was essentially none, with inflation year over year of just over one-tenth of one percent. It also barely ticked up May to June. That'll cheer businesses worried about supply costs and everyone who wants fewer interest rate hikes. Now, Anchor Brewing, maker of Anchor Steam Beer, started in the gold rush, made it through the 06 quake, the Spanish flu and prohibition, but it is not making it through the post-COVID world. What some see as America's first craft brewery is closing down. Sapporo of Japan bought Anchor six years ago, but it's not working. Also, we're drinking less beer. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. When Anchor spokesperson Sam Singer was just getting to be of age in Berkeley in the 70s, getting a hold of an Anchor beer was a big deal. That's what the cool guys drank. That was old style. That was OG. Anchor is OG, and then it calls itself America's first craft brewery. But it's relied on people buying its beer in bars and restaurants, which we didn't go to as much during lockdowns. Singer says the company's annual revenue has declined by 75 percent since 2016. And there are now over 9,000 craft breweries in the U.S., compared to one when Anchor started. And they're wonderful competitors, wonderful brews, but many of those also are eating up shelf space. Also, beer sales were down 3 percent last year by volume, according to the Brewers Association, a trade group. Bart Watson is its chief economist. He says wine and liquor have gotten less expensive relative to beer. If you have two somewhat substitutable goods, one gets cheaper relative to the other. You're going to see some consumer shifts there. Also, Americans are aging. And Watson points out the older we get, the less beer we drink. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. San Francisco Chronicle critic Peter Hartlaub had a line yesterday about Anchor Steam tasting like San Francisco. Quote, It tastes like a cold, foggy day with notes of a sourdough factory and a hint of the metallic rail of a cable car. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. Attendance in the office is now 30% below the pre-pandemic level. The COVID trend has stuck. What happens now to all that unused commercial real estate? McKinsey has analyzed this question. Aditya Sangvi is co-author of a new report on this from the McKinsey Global Institute. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I guess it's not just me when I walk through Midtown East and it just seems quieter in those office buildings. Yeah, it's not just you. You know, the pandemic has truly changed the fabric of urban real estate. And it really does start with the office. And it's because the office was really a place that many of us had to go to. And because of the pandemic and the technology adoption that happened during the pandemic, now the office has to be a place that we want to go to. The reality is, is that most of our office spaces are not set up well to be a place that I want to go to. And as a result, you're seeing a lot less people. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to find much childcare if you go into the office. That's a big issue for people. And also, unless you live right nearby, there's going to be a commute. Yeah, exactly. And I think the commute in particular has been one of the main reasons why people are not coming to the office. And, you know, the reality is that the experience at the office is not always better than the experience at home. So even if I did take the pain of making the commute? Am I going somewhere where I feel more productive, more, you know, joyful, it's more convenient than being at home? The answer for many knowledge workers is no. So companies must be reevaluating their relationship with commercial real estate. I mean, some are stuck with leases, not much they can do, but others are reevaluating. I think almost every company is, and these are both the companies that occupy office space, but then also retailers who are, are having physical stores and they have to think very differently about where their stores should be. But, you know, on the office side in particular, most of our clients are really focused on how do I right size how much space I have? So only take the space that I really need for the attendance that's coming in, but make that space even better of an experience than it was before the pandemic. Because then maybe I can get the people that I want to come in, in the moments that I want them to come in to work with the people I want them to work with. But to your point, they don't need as much space as they had before. And certainly a 10-year lease, you know, is very difficult because if I barely know how much space I need in one year, how am I gonna know how much space I need in 10 years? Aditya Sangvi is taking the long-term view on this changing patterns of commercial real estate. He's a senior partner at McKinsey and co-author of the new McKinsey Global Institute report called Empty Spaces and Hybrid Places. Thank you very much. Thank you. And it's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.